On the Empire Podcast this week, it's Christmas, Theo. It is a time for miracles. We look ahead to December 25th, we talk about our favourite Christmas movies, and Santa pops in with a bulging sack. Filled um, with presents, including Chris McQuarrie, Juan Antonio Bayona, and Colin Trevorrow. Merry freaking Christmas, everybody. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and this is the Empire Podcast, the movie podcast that we're delighted and humbled to say was voted Best New Audio Podcast 2012 by no less than iTunes. Ooh. A lot to live up to, and if you're new to the show, we'd like to apologise in advance. Joining me, as always, for a hot, steamy session of no-holds-barred movie chat are the Ghost of Empire podcast's past, Ali Plum. Hello. Hello. You didn't have to dress up in the sheet, though. No, I did not. It's a nice touch, I like it. The Ghost of Empire podcast's present, Hello. I'm sorry. Wait until you're introduced. Sorry, go ahead. For the ghosted present to come in too early was a bit wrong with it. Uh, Helen O'Hara. Ooh, hello. Hello. And finally, the ghost of Empire Podcasts yet to come. It's Phil Dissemlian. Hello. Hi. No art house joke for you this week. Ooh, I noticed. I know. I, it was hard to fit it in. I'm sure there's going to be some later on. This no. is going for the podcast in Bulgaria. 2000, yes. <laughs> okay. 2013. Okay, let's get down to uh, brass tacks with uh, your questions. And yes, there's a bit of a Christmassy vibe going on. Uh, so the first one's from at Bertie underscore D via Twitter. Uh, what prize would you have inside an Empire Christmas cracker? The ring from Lord of the Rings, perhaps? Mm, not such a good prize, I would say, because then it would corrupt yeah, you. Yeah, you'd lose your soul and stuff. Yeah. It's not, not What's good. our nearest volcano, anyway? Uh, Iceland, Iceland, yeah. Iceland, 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 yeah. Iceland, yeah. yeah, that unpronounceable one that that's always blowing up. I thought it would be fun. You get <clears throat> you get the diamond from Pink Panther. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you open it. Presuming you won the pull of it. Sure, yeah. Um, a joke written by Christopher Guest potentially, and a hat from the Adjustment Bureau. A joke written by Christopher Guest. Oh, I like the hat from the Adjustment Bureau. That would be good. Oh, wouldn't that's it? good. Yeah. Yeah. Put that on, and everyone would disappear. What if it was like one of those, like a cracker that had the same properties as Mary Poppins' bag? And then it just had everything you could possibly want in there. I like that also. That would be good. That would be good. I'd go over jokes written by uh, Lowell Gantz and Babalu Mandel. Okay. <laughs> Ali, what would, you, what would you have in there? Uh, thinking about uh, the ring, I would have gone for Harry Potter's invisibility cloak because then you don't have the nasty side effects of losing your soul and stuff, but still the uh, ability to be invisible. How big is his cracker, by the way? Massive. It's a massive cracker. It's, it's one of those really large crackers. It's like those big checks that you give to people at charities. Yeah, yeah, okay. it's like that. Okay, good. Helen, what do you Well, what if it's want? a really large cracker, I want the hoverboard from Back to the Future. And if it's a smaller, more bijou cracker, then I'd like the Heart of the Ocean from Titanic because then I could sell it, frankly, and, you know, fund the rest of my life. No, and that's just... the Christmas spirit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just chuck it into the town. Just lob it in a pond. No. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, the wonderful at Picture Houses a.k.a. you know the nice Ooh. people with the cinema chain mm-hmm. um, Picture Houses via Cineworld have asked us uh, Mary Podmus from All at Picture House Towers that's nice of them oh, 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 Mary Podmus do you too. Mary Podmus uh, what are your go-to Christmas films ah here we are here we are this is here a long we go. list here we go long list not a lot of time Helen uh, It's a Wonderful Life Die is, Hard Elf Scrooged yeah Bad good. Santa oh good one good one yeah National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation yeah. has to be in there for me. Muppet's Christmas Carol. Oh, Muppet Christmas Carol. That is, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Ali? You've listed a lot of them. I think we're forgetting the Christmas movies that aren't actually ostensibly about Christmas, so Great Escape and uh, The Italian Job, that kind of mm. caper. Mm. That, for me, is in many ways more about Christmas. Caper's the word, isn't it? It's about capering. Yeah, and capers, you know, with your mm. food. 
pretty much uh, Shane Black's entire filmography is mm-hmm. uh, set to or linked to Christmas in including some way. Including Iron Man 3, by the looks of things. Including Iron Man 3. Uh, Lethal Weapon is set at Christmas and has that wonderful introduction uh, to Mel Gibson's character where he uh, he beats up three crooks in a Christmas tree lot. And one of the crooks is played by Anthony Kiedis' dad Ooh, of all people. And I've forgotten goodness. the guy's name in real life. but, uh, but Mr. It's true. Mr. Kiedis? No, no, it's not actually. Oh. It's, uh, what's his name? I'll look it up. Okay. Phil, go. Well, hi Matt, volume two, obviously. <laughs> eight and a half. Andrew Wodge's Resistance Trilogy. We did actually, and not kidding, we did watch Eight and a Half last Christmas. And if my brother comes in, he'll probably still be talking about that, I imagine. He brought it up recently. Um, I'm with Helen. I love Scrooge, Die Hard. I haven't seen Scrooge in years. I've, I've actually got it synced up to, to watch over the Christmas period. Uh, Loma National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Mm. Obviously, Die Hard, which is, is good? the greatest. Die Hard. No, not Die Hard. Christmas <laughs> Vacation. Oh, it's brilliant. Is it? It's fantastic. It's the best of the uh, of the okay. series. Mm. I also have the Hudsucker Proxy lined up for for probably nearer New Year's, but it's in there. Yeah, I love that film. I didn't. I never really put it down as a Christmas movie, but I suppose it completely is. It is. Mm. It it's is. got that Capra, in many many ways. Capra vibe. Uh, in hot uh, Anthony Kiedis' dad uh, update. His name is Blackie Dammit, and he was born John Kiedis on the 19th of August, 1935, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, USA. And he's also best known uh, for being the psycho killer in National Lampoon's Class Reunion. Well. A movie I watched a lot when I was a kid. I feel I've learned a lot. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I'm your one-stop shop for all Anthony <laughs> Kiedis' dad's facts. Uh, yeah, Die Hard, Die Hard, National Lampoon's Crucifixion. It's a wonderful life. I don't think there's anything that's particularly left field, apart no. from mm-hmm. Phil... I'm mad. Not left field. There's some festive scenes in there. It has to be because it's like every day for about seven years. <laughs> Glory of averages. <laughs> All right. Uh, at a blog about film asks again, Mary Podmus. Oh, that's nice. Mary Podmus, back to you. Uh, who's your favourite screen Santa? Oh, Phil. Michelle Monaghan. <laughs> Gina Davis also dresses up in a Santa costume in The Long Kiss Goodnight. Michelle Monaghan, yes, I agree with that, but she's not really playing Santa Claus, is she? Richard Attenborough. She's just dressed up as Santa. Richard Attenborough. I'm actually with you. Richard Attenborough, I mean, I know people sniff at remakes, but uh, he's a fantastic Santa in the Miracle of on 34th Street remake. He's absolutely terrific. Um, he'd be my favourite. I have one which isn't from a movie, so just deal with it. <gasps> but it's... Well, it isn't a movie, actually, because the... The penultimate season to the one that's currently showing or, or has been shown uh, was a series of four films, and this is Futurama. They made uh, four movies that became a season. Anyway, Robot Santa Claus is who I'm talking about, who is the um, <laughs> the guy who... The robot that was created by the friendly robot company to be the man who decided who was naughty or nice. Unfortunately, the standard setting was set way too high, so <laughs> he kills everyone who's been naughty. And that's <laughs> almost every person in the universe, apart from Zoidberg, <laughs> is naughty. So <laughs> because of him, you have lines like... Your mistletoe is no match for my toe missile. (laughs) And fires off this rocket towards their faces. Honestly, my favourite. And also, he's got his companions. He's actually quite friendly to these guys. Kwanzaa Bot and uh, the Hanukkah zombie, uh, who he's okay with. Uh, He's okay with them. Um, Okay, I think we're going to have to talk about the meaning of Christmas once we're at the studio, Ali. That sounds absolutely amazing. Um, I'm going to say a really obvious ones. David Huddleston as Santa Claus in Santa Claus, a movie. Yes. Uh, he really captured the true spirit of Santa Claus for me, despite <laughs> the fact the movie is a load of rubbish. I also had the tie-in novelization, which was brilliant. Um, Billy Bob Thornton uh, in Bad Santa. Technically speaking, not Santa Claus, of course, but uh, he's just brilliant in that. Obviously, Dan Aykroyd as uh, a drink-sodden 
despondent Louis Winthrop III in uh, Trading Places when he uh, he dresses up as Santa Claus and gets the salmon stuck in his beard? I have the definitive answer to this. The best Santa that has ever been on screen is Peter Jackson and Hot Fuzz stabbing oh, yes. uh, Simon Pegg in the hand. And he, honestly, Peter Jackson looks like he's in heaven. Hmm. He loves a bit of it. Yeah. You really like your violent Santas, don't you? Yep. What's that movie, the John Frankenheimer movie, where, where like um, Ben Affleck and people dress up as Santa? Reindeer Games. Bank. Is that any? Is that any good? I haven't seen no. that. No. no. <laughs> Why are they dress up as Santa to rob a bank? I can't it's Christmas. I can't remember. Oh. Yeah, something like that. As soon as there's more than one of them, mm-hmm. and they're heavily armed, that's going to arouse suspicion. Well, not in Ali's world. He he expects Santa to be heavily armed. Okay. Well, something. Did you have an experience with Santa when you were young? Yes, he had a long sabre and he held it to my throat wow. and said, here are your presents. Do you have a metal detector built into your chimney? Yes. And pat him down as he comes through. <laughs> I don't know. Does the guns fall, to the, fall into the fireplace <laughs> first, you know he's coming. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Gremlins. Gotta mention Gremlins. A lot of them. There are a lot of them. Uh, okay, so that's our favourite Santas, favourite Christmas movies. And next question is from at Styles underscore J-E or J. Um, seeing as I'll be listening to this as the world ends, because this comes out on the 21st, and we're all meant to be dead on the 21st. According to a misreading of the Mayan Long Count calendar, oh, sure. come on, you spoil everyone's fun. I know, all dead. facts. <laughs> this is the last one. What are your favourite movie apocalypses? Ooh. I've got one. Bring it. Jack and Jill. Boom! <laughs> wow. Moving on. Because that's pretty much it. <laughs> I think we're going to see some of them next year. Um, next year there's about six different films uh, involving, you know, a devastated Earth in one way or another. And I'm, uh, I'm very suspicious that, you know, maybe they, they're on to something. Maybe they know. Maybe I've Hollywood's sa- trying to tell us. I've said this before. I've said this before. The number of giant planets slash asteroids slamming into the Earth movies mm. over the last few years... They're preparing this. They are. They're getting they us ready. Preparing this. Yeah. Yeah. Will um, Smith, I, Tom Cruise, yeah. Brad Pitt. These are the forerunners. I don't know how seeking a friend at the end of the world is going to help prepare <laughs> us for the end of the world, but you never know. Um, I I can't look beyond movies like obviously the Romero trilogy, um, the first Romero trilogy, not the second. Uh, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, particularly for me, Day of the Dead is incredibly apocalyptic, even though it's very. Uh, intimate mm. it's not a very uh, widespread movie but you do get to see Florida at the beginning of the film uh, devastated 28 days later mm. and I love the last shot of the alternate ending or the original ending depending on your take of uh, Army of Darkness where Bruce Campbell sleeps a little bit too long and wakes up and the world is post-apocalyptic <laughs> uh, so that's a fantastic one for me I thought mm. the robe was pretty good yes <clears throat> that's a Christmassy film right there that's a, that's a knockabout <laughs> sex comedy yeah, yeah. Wait, come coming up on our rom-coms of the year I, that one intercuts cleverly I think and it also leaves an, so much doubt and, mm. of what actually ha- is mm. happening and, and you really kind of get infected with that insecurity mm. and fear Mad Max Mad Max yeah. yeah. one of my favourite bits of Rise of the Planet of the Apes uh, was the final credit sequence where you see the virus spreading I didn't like that you didn't like that bit no I thought just Put it in the movie. Don't put it at the end of the movie. Don't put something so monumental at the end of the movie when people, a lot of people have left and missed it by that point. Yeah, but I, I just think when something like that is wrapped into the fabric of the narrative, you've got to put it into the film. Well, I Not like, as an afterthought. I like being congratulated for sitting down and watching the credits. <laughs> Good as point. A, you mentioned 28 Days Later as a piece of like non-dialogue-based storytelling. The beginning of that film is just incredible. Mm. I think, you know, how much it says with absolutely no dialogue. And what a striking kind of scary vision of a, of a dead world you know, I, when he's looking at all those bits of paper flapping around in Piccadilly Circus yeah. 
And I've never got I Am Legend right, but I do love the the, uh, the opening of several versions of that. The Charlton Heston version of Mega Man. Mm-hmm. And even the Will Smith one, because it is that, that sort of wish, that sort of fantasy element of what you would do if you were the last person alive. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Will Smith watches a lot of Shrek. What would you watch if you were the last man? I'd watch Die Hard, National Lampoon's Christmas Reunion. <laughs> You'd Bad watch Santa. the George Romero films, wouldn't you? I would watch, you know, what is a, as a sort of how-to guide. I think if you, were, if you were the last person on earth, you'd probably watch a lot of really fluffy films, wouldn't you? Just to try and, you know, remember no, what people looked like. You'd go, you'd go nuts. Oh, although a decent Christmas movie. Just put okay. back to bed while you were sleeping. It's actually bit, all right. Bit of a gem, bit of yeah. a bit of a hidden dark horsey type thing, left fieldy. No sure. one's mentioned Love Actually, which I'm quite pleased with. Get out of town. Get out. Get out. Get out. And shut Love the actually. front door. Yeah. I just Love said that I didn't like it. You didn't like it. No, Ooh, I just come said, back in again. Come back I in. Just, make, make yourself at home. Make uh-huh. yourself comfy. Have some eggnog, and, yeah. and we're all friends. Again. We have eggnog. Um, of of sorts. Okay. Um. So yeah. Well, so what I was saying was. I'm glad no one's brought it up yet because I feel like when we have these conversations or when my friends have these conversations, there's always somebody who chirps up with, oh, well, it's so much. Oh, no, it's not. It's saccharine. Movie apocalypse. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Nice tie-in, Ali. On that note, uh, we move on to a question from at D underscore Hems who says, do you guys ever disagree? Yes. No. 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 Uh, Thanks so much for your questions once again. Well-rehearsed, people. Um, Keep them coming using the hashtag EmpirePodcast if you're on Twitter or Facebook or email, which is podcast at EmpireOnline.com. And before we tackle this week's movie news, it's time to unwrap the first interview of the pod thanks to Santa and his bulging sack. Uh, Colin Trevorrow is very much a director to watch arriving on the scene with this week's wistful sci-fi tinged comedy Safety Night Guaranteed, which was a Sundance hit last January. Uh, since then, Trevorrow has been in the headlines being linked with future projects from a remake of Flight of the Navigator, to which he's definitely attached, and even Star Wars Episode Seven, to which he is definitely not. He talked about those and Safety Not Guaranteed with me recently. Uh, welcome to the show, Colin. Thank you. Are you jet-lagged? Are you... <laughs> Do you feel vaguely human? <laughs> I feel vaguely human, yeah. I, I was introduced to the British pub crawl last night. Okay. Uh, which is probably where my ailment comes from, but I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna rally for you. Uh, yeah, because so some people may have, have dubbed this, I presume, be mumblecore sci-fi, is that? Yeah, you is could. That, yeah. I, I don't know if it, I mean... I don't, I, think, I don't think it applies, but... I mean, I guess to more than other sci-fi movies yeah. it applies. Uh, yeah. And it, I mean, it's, it's as small a sci-fi movie as you can get. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, th- I think probably just because we we have so many moments that are caring a lot about you know the emotional honesty and the, and the truth between the characters, which is something that that Mark and and you know the better mumblecore movies are are really trying to do. Mm. Uh, but you know, there's you know, there's lights and you can hear what people are saying. And <laughs> there's, there's elements that are not very mumblecore about it. You said it's the smallest time travel movie. Probably second smaller. I mean, primary is smaller, right? That's true. That is true. So uh, we, we won't take credit for that. And uh, Time Crimes is pretty small time as well. Pretty small. Pretty small as well. But the, the second smallest is, is, is pretty good. But it's 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 uh, it's a movie which really it's a time travel film. But the time travel element isn't. It's, it's almost obfuscated at times. It's it's very much about the relationships. Yeah, I think we could win least amount of time travel in, in a time, time travel, travel movie. movie. Yeah, we get that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that you know that's part of what made us feel like we were we had any right to make a time travel movie at all i mean there's there's a long rich history of of time travel in films and so we really wanted to find a reason you know why we could could even think to do another one and you know being able to do a movie that's that's more about the the emotional needs that that time travel satisfies in all of us like why we need a time machine sometimes and we all wish we had one and and that to me you felt like a 
a new way to address it. And uh, talking about the time machine again, whether it works or not, but there is there is a machine in the movie that we mm-hmm. that we end up seeing and designing it. Yeah, must have been fun given that there's, there's been quite a few in, in movie history quite a few there, are iconic as well there have it, it's funny because like Derek's you know Derek's reason for for making it a boat uh, which which uh, initially was supposed to be like a you know, in Florida, like those propeller boats, those airboats that they hunt alligators and crocodiles yes. with. It was supposed to be one of those because uh, the character was much more of a, a kind of a rural backwater, like you'd call him a redneck kind of character in America. And and we pulled back a little bit on that because uh, we we just didn't want to make him any kind of caricature. But uh, the boat, because we were in Washington State, you know, they don't have alligators. And so they don't have those boats. And, and so we had to find another way to do it. And we found this this old shell of an of a army boat uh, that was under a bridge in Seattle that was owned by the city of Seattle. We leased it from them and, and just constructed, this, you know, this ridiculous contraption in the boat. And, you know, Derek's reason was, you know, the cooling properties of the water were going to help. <laughs> the, you know, he had like this really nerdy reason why it, it should be a boat. Uh, and then uh, Ben Blankenship, uh, who is, is like the closest to actual Kenneth of anyone I've met. This is our production designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was it was like having Kenneth, you know, building your, your time machine. And he would come to me with, you know, these blueprints that were actually, you know, the blueprints that are in the movie when they go into his lab at the end they go into the garage these are the actual blueprints that he would show to me and say this is what it's going to look like and the guy's (laughs) going to stand here and this part's a surprise Uh, so so there were parts of it that I didn't even know and uh, I didn't actually see it uh, until like two or three days before we were going to shoot this thing and Uh we had a a day to shoot that whole sequence so there was no room (laughs) for error here and uh, you know, I saw it, and we all re- obviously the producers were freaking out, and all of us were were a little nervous. And then we realized, oh no, this guy actually put a real jet engine on the back of this thing that's going to spit fire. Like this is cool. Yeah, that is not a special effect. That's actual fire. Wow. Okay. Uh, and you know, there's a, on the on the Blu-ray in America, there's a behind the scenes uh, feature that maybe you know some someday we'll be able to see here as well. And there's footage of of the, the two of them, you know, on this boat, and you hear me in the background going fire, fire. It is. It's just one of those great like. A bunch of fourteen-year-olds making a movie. You know, to talk about your SNL days uh, briefly. Uh, what, what period were you? Uh, an intern? I have a good. I have a good geeky SNL story for you. Okay. Uh, I so I you know, my job. Uh, I was an intern. I was I was unpaid, and I worked in the talent department. So I would occasionally have to uh, just you know make sure that somebody who was there for the day some talented person was not bored and one of those people was <laughs> was Gary Coleman I got to hang out with Gary for the day cool. and just you know make sure that that he w- uh, was getting everything needed but uh, the 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 big memory and this was in a time before cell phones and you can imagine why that it wouldn't happen in the time of cell phones but uh, Quentin Tarantino was the guest and this was like the fall of 1995 and and he uh, he said okay well, I need someone I forgot my notebook I need someone to go back to my hotel room and get my notebook. It's like, all right, man, you go get it. And so he throws me in his car. Then I go back and I, and I'm, I find myself in his hotel room, like holding his notebook with all the notes for Kill Bill in it. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's that time. It's before he started doing that movie. And so I'm right, you know, I'm riding home, uh, you know, in this car and I'm like, I know what I'm holding. I'm like, all right, well, I know he doesn't want me to look at the, this right now and yet here I am like alone in this car and it's this little just let me see the first page just the first page <laughs> uh, but that was you know I, I was already a, a huge huge fan at the time and to like see a page that was just you know weird ideas and then like Bruce Willis question mark crossed off John Travolta <laughs> you know, like, oh Jesus what's going on this is incredible uh, so that yeah that was that was my geek out moment I guess it's interesting for example that you're doing Flight of the Navigator because yeah. I imagine that was a huge formative experience for you watching 
that film or, or just growing up in the in the 80s all this great sci-fi and all these great these great kids movies from Goonies to Explorers and movies like that uh, you know so Flight of the Navigator wasn't a successful film uh, and most people saw it on home video uh, and I think that's a very distinctive very 80s experience in itself is that <laughs> memory of like having five VHS tapes that you happen to get your hands on and you just watch those movies over and over and over again and that's something you know my kid can get anything he wants whenever I don't mean like as a person but as far as like media is concerned Absolutely. there's a movie you want to see everything's available all the time uh, and, and I think that is, that's a very unique uh, part of, of the era that we grew up in to, and, and it gave great value uh, and I feel like you know movies in a lot of ways have, have sort of been devalued as as far as how easy they are to access uh, whereas at that time like I worshipped that old shitty VHS of <laughs> Flight of the Navigator <laughs> and uh, and you know that movie particularly it's, it's not that that I solely love that movie from that era and there are no others. It's that, you know, I'm never touching Back to the Future. I'm not touching Goonies. Like, I mean, these movies are iconic and, and classic and, and insert, you know, as far as Back to the Future is concerned, I would say flawless. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, with this one, you know, it's, it's obviously it's not the next movie. I don't even know it's going to be the next movie after that. It's just something that a little bit it was a defensive measure because I knew they were going to have somebody write that script. And so it's like, all right, look, if anyone's going to write Flight of the Navigator, I'm writing Flight of the Navigator. Uh, so that, we played a little defense on it but you know I, th I think in the end you know that we have the same question that everyone else has which is why remake flight of the navigator yeah and we have to answer that for ourselves mm -hmm. and we're starting from a very fundamental place and we know what our we know what our themes are and we know we we know why we're interested in it uh and and i think that you know there will probably be many many drafts torn up and we've already <laughs> torn up one and, and oh, really sure i mean this is just what you have to do i, I think if you Especially when you're building something like that, when you get too precious uh, with anything, uh, even with not even just the original necessarily, but with 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 your neat ideas that you're super proud of, if, if you feel like no, no, this has to exist no matter what, uh, it's it's going to get really hard because you know these, especially anything, and you know this isn't necessarily really a time travel movie, but something of of that scope, you know, you, you change one thing and and the house of cards comes down, and and so you really have to be open. There's an interesting um, theory, obviously, about remakes is that you should, uh, as you've mentioned, leave the classics alone and, and go for the movies that have good ideas and good intentions at the core, but perhaps weren't wholly successful. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, obviously, for you, Flight of the Navigator is a seminal film, but... No, but think, I put it in that flaws or oh, things. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, I would put it in that category for yeah. sure. And, you know, not to knock that movie. I mean, obviously, I love it, but I think it's it's it definitely... It's, I mean, whether you can call them flaws or not, like, it's, it's something that... You know the the movie itself is is kind of fascinating in its structure, and that the first half of that movie is sort of a sci-fi child thriller, you know, and it is kind of scary. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the second half of that movie is basically a comedy. Yes, and, and it just you know the the difference in tone <laughs> between the first half and the second half. I, I'm not sure if there are a lot of movies I can think of that take that big of a shift. Uh, and that's something that you know. I think that we can we can try and balance out a little bit more mm -hmm. uh, and have be mm -hmm. a bit more consistent and and you know just because I don't I don't entirely know what we're gonna do uh, it's it's hard to you know I also probably shouldn't be talking about what we're gonna do but <laughs> uh, you know I, what I what I do know is that I, I think there are, there are, there are a lot of uh, really really cool uh, ideas uh, at the core of that movie and yeah. and the the fear that I think all children have of of you know waking up and and their childhood being gone mm -hmm. and and also that you know if you look at I, I see the movie more as a, as a Wizard of Oz journey as opposed to a, a time travel movie and if if you uh, 
if you think about how, how scary that would be to, to have your childhood be taken away from you and then have your goal be to get back and be able to live your childhood uh, because mm-hmm. we all deserve that. And uh, you announced your involvement in Flight of the Navigator in yes. order to ward off the theories and the rumors that you were going to direct episode seven. Yeah, we had to clear some things up there. Yeah. <laughs> that must have been an interesting time. Yeah, it was, and you know, it, it really like it, it was an issue of, and it, it, it was at that moment that I that I saw that somehow, uh, you know, something I said about Navigator like six months ago uh, in a in a podcast that I'd done at a film festival, and you're, you're not thinking about these things. I didn't know they were doing a Star Wars movie, and like, you know, in May of <laughs> nobody did, doesn't no, it? <laughs> like, you know, you don't expect these things, and and uh, you know, it, what what the reason why I meet not only because I, I knew at that point that it definitely I was not directing Episode Seven, uh, and I'm sure you know I, when. When they announce who is directing episode seven, I'm sure the first thing a lot of people uh, will think is, I can't believe we thought for a second that Colin Trevorrow was going to direct episode (laughs) seven. But because uh, I think they're going to make an incredible choice and we're all going to be very excited about it. Uh, but, you know, what I didn't want is, you know, this uh, there there was somehow, you know, something I said got turned into. I was saying I will make Star Wars not suck, uh, which I did not say. Uh, and is you know what I was saying, <laughs> I think very humbly is like we're going to do a remake of, of Flight of the Navigator. And, and I, you know, I'm, we're going to really try and make that not suck. Right. Uh, but that's in the context of many remakes being bad. Yeah. I think yeah. saying in the context of Star Wars is a little loaded. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I would by no means uh, want to say that, uh, and I didn't. But you haven't ruled yourself out of episode eight, I've noticed. I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> oh boy, here we go again. <laughs> Colin Trevorrow to direct episode eight. Oh, brother. <laughs> but, but for the uh, the 48 hours, or the, the I guess it was a week, roughly, between the, the time your name was linked with episode seven to the Flight of the Navigator announcement. Right. What happened in that week? Did, did, did your phone never stop ringing? Did people that you'd never seen before for, for months suddenly come out of the woodwork and go, Colin? No, it was, well, it was funny because it happened while I was in Sweden. I, I'd gone to Sweden for a film festival. And uh, I, so I was, you know, already I'm exhausted and I'm in a hotel in like in Stockholm. And then I, you know, I turn on the Internet. It's like, what's going on in America right now? Uh, and, you know, it, it, it basically just sort of forced everybody's hand to to we weren't even necessarily going to announce Flight of the Navigator right now. That was something yeah. we were just working on. And and uh, so it, it made all of us need to, to step forward and, and you know clear the air on that thing. But yeah, it was a little bizarre. Very, very briefly, Colin, because I've got to let you go. I've had thoughts about what episode seven could be. Everyone's had thoughts about what episode seven could be. Yeah. And did you Have you had any thoughts about what you'd like to see from that film? Uh, as a Star Wars speaking fan? as a layman, yeah, like yeah. As, a, as a Star Wars, uh, Star Wars fan, fan, not only. as a director of Episode Seven. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, you know, my own—it's really more of a question. Like my question is, you know, what is what is going to be the uh, the iconic dynamic of that movie? And when you look at at the original trilogy, that movie's it was an Oedipal story. It was, it was father and son. And when you look at the new the you know the prequels that was master and apprentice mm-hmm. and so it's it seems that you know the, the, each of these trilogies rest on on a huge huge idea that's existed for you know thousands of years and so i i wonder what thousand year old uh story foundation this one's going to rest on i don't know the answer no uh, nor do i nor do i but it's gonna be fun finding out yeah well, Colin, it's been a pleasure, sir, and wish you all the best with Intelligent Life and ultimately Flightland Navigator. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. All right. Cheers. Um, okay, moving news time. Helen. Hello. Hello. 
Um, I've brought news of the Star Trek teaser trailer. I thought we should uh, discuss this. Now, this is not to be confused with the Star Trek announcement trailer, which obviously came out a few weeks ago. Um, this is a slightly longer teaser. It gives us slightly more to go on in terms of the film. Um, and combined with what the very little we do know, we've been able to make a few more kind of deductions about the film. So we see uh, some sections from the prologue, which has already been shown on, on the big screen, on IMAX screenings of The Hobbit. There's been a nine-minute prologue shown. And that involves uh, two major scenes, really. It involves an, uh, a very quiet scene with Noel Clark and his on-screen wife, headed to a hospital in future London or just outside future London uh, and visiting their very, very ill child. And they are told, uh, obviously, bad news about her. We don't get to hear what that news is. Uh, before he's approached by a very mysterious figure played by Benedict Cumberbatch, um, who says, I can save her life. So, uh, you know, something going on there. We see a tiny glimpse in this trailer of Noel Clark putting some kind of tablet in water. So presumably whatever it is that... Uh, Benedict is offering him. Uh, we now know his character is called John Harrison. Uh, make of that what you will. Um, whatever John Harrison's given him, he's putting in water, so he's presumably signed up to whatever it is. Um, and we also saw sections of an action scene which sees uh, Bones and Kirk on an alien world. And they're basically trying not to, to break the prime directive and interfere with this kind of primitive species that's living there. But they're also trying to save the primitive species from a giant volcano. So that's why Spock is in a volcano trying to turn it off. Oh, yeah, that's what's going on. Somewhere in the volcano. That's yeah, he just needs to find the button. Yeah, there's a reset button. You just go, <laughs> volcano switches off. In the manner of speaking. Take that, geologists. <laughs> <laughs> He's that guy from You Only Live Twice to say, open crater. <laughs> <laughs> or, somewhere in the corner of the volcano is this, what, is it Fifefield from Prometheus going, I love rocks! <laughs> I love lava. I love being burnt alive. I love being lost in ships and I'm mapping. Anyway, we'll move on to that another time, I'm sure. Uh, cool. So, so yeah, I mean, I think taken in, in, in with the prologue, if you've been lucky enough to see that, certainly taken with the announcement trailer, this is all giving us a little tiny bit extra to go on. Certainly all the action's looking terrific, but I think there is going to be quite a lot of character scenes there, you know, from the voiceovers that we're hearing, both from, I think it's Bones and from Cumberbatch's character, it's clear that there's some big dilemmas ahead for William Christopher. Yes. Over the, over the trailer. Not over the film itself. Oh, okay. Okay, I thought maybe the nine minutes you've seen oh. had voiceover no not in no. nine minutes okay apart from maybe captain's log and all that sort of stuff in that kind of thing yeah yeah and space so uh, yeah uh, it's looking very good i interviewed alice eve and benedict cumberbatch in Ooh. conjunction with this i saw the nine minutes as well you lucky devil so i'll be transcribing that interview and you'll be seeing it hopefully by the end of this year so you'll be able to read that um they reveal a couple of tidbits uh, obviously with this being a jj abrams production secrecy is their watchword so don't expect Huge reveals. Did they confirm that they are indeed Alice Eve and Benedict Cumberbatch? <laughs> Benedict revealed that he was Alice Eve, which oh was... Oh, that's a bit, a bit of a, a shock. Yeah. It's yeah. blowing the whole thing wide open. Uh, <laughs> do we know who Alice Eve is playing yet? She's playing a character known as Carol Marcus. Ah. you watched Wrath of Khan, mm. which you should have. Uh, she is a part of that film. She's a big part of that film. She is. She is the mother of Kirk's son in that film. Now, obviously, that's set in dun, dun, dun. a future time. She's a much older character, so is Kirk. Uh, could they get together here? Probably, but we'll see. <laughs> She's attractive, he's attractive, they're on a five-year voyage, shit happens. She's hey. a doctor. She's a pretty doctor, he's a pretty patient. <laughs> There's oh, Chris, Chris, guidelines to break. Chris, come oh, back to us. I've got a sore knee, oh, look, oh, oh, higher, higher. I'm just saying, things could happen. I reckon they will. Mm. Okay, that's cool, well done. Yeah. Well done, Star Trek. It's a good story. Uh, Phil. 
moi, um, Angelina Jolie story, which I'm actually, it sounds amazing to me. It's called, it's a project called Unbroken and it's going to be her second directorial gig after the Serbian romantic drama. In the land of blood and honey. Thank you very much. Um, this one's going to be for Universal, so it's her first big studio picture and you, you'd imagine she's got some, she can get a meeting, you'd think. Um, and the story is amazing. I was looking at it earlier and it's based on a book by Laura H- Hillenbrand. It's been in the New York Times bestseller list for like a billion years. Um, it's about a guy, she wrote Seabiscuit as well, worth mentioning. It's about a guy called Louis Zamperini. And in 1936, he competed in the Berlin Olympics. This is a kind of a prologue, Hobbit style. Um, he came eighth in the 5,000 meters. Mm-hmm. And apparently... Good story, Phil. Hit, oh, I haven't finished yet. Shut it. <clears throat> Put your invisibility cloak on. Um, Done. Hitler apparently took him to one side and went, ah, oh, you're the boy with the fast finish, because he had a very fast final lap. Presumably before saying, the be a smarty, come and join the Nazi party. Anyway, so fast forward <laughs> to the Second World War. He's a, he's a bomber pilot and he's sent out in a slightly shonky plane on a rescue mission 8,000 miles, 800 miles west of Oahu. Um, his plane goes down. The plane is actually called Green Hornet. Mm-hmm. It's a bit... Cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, um, he's adrift at sea with three other crew members, the only ones that survived the crash. Are any of them a tiger? None of them. I have no, none of them are tiger. I'm coming to that, though. Okay. Um, they're at sea for, he's at sea for 47 days. They kill an albatross, use the albatross meat to catch fish, kill a shark. There's all kinds of sea-based mayhem. Washes up on the Marshall Islands and is immediately captured by the Japanese and confined to a brutal prisoner of war camp. Whoa. It's the life of Kwai. Uh, very good. Take yeah, that to the bank. Thanks. Anyway, and, and, so there's so much. I mean, this is a it's, it's an amazing survival story, but it's got different dimensions to it. I don't know how far back um, Angelina Jolie would go. It's written by. It's the last draft of this is written by William Nicholson, um, co-writer on Gladiator, and uh, a guy that's you know used to big sweeping man on the way home type stories <laughs> looking for a homeland looking, looking for, for a homeland he does get a home this guy without giving too much away that totally gave the endings, away the ending without giving too much away back up he lives at the, he lives at the end <laughs> anyway looks good cool excellent look forward hang on to that. I, I've read the rhyme of the ancient mariner it's really bad luck to kill an albatross usually yeah, yeah but it is yeah in, in real life in not in like massive poems and Iron Maiden songs I, I think it's actually okay well, that's, oh. what, that's why I got captured by sketch that's, that's kind of why huh. you can eat albatross yes uh, Ali, what have you got? Uh, I've got three stories, all that come from Django and Chain's ongoing junketeering session where they've been going to journalists and speaking their brains. Uh, so I've got one from Jamie Foxx, who's been talking about uh, Electro, which is the new villain that we can look forward to in The Amazing Spider-Man 2, Mark Webb's follow-up to this year's Spidey movie. He has said about the costume, which is traditionally green and yellow, that it won't be. But the more interesting thing, if we ignore his costume details... I like Electra's costume. Yeah, well, they're doing a different one. Stupid. So, here we go. What you'll see, this is about his character, Max Dillon, who uh, is kind of put upon by his mother. Uh, he's not treated very well, and then he gets kind of... You'll explain it better, Chris, but he's, his thing is electricity, as you may have guessed. Mm. Uh, for his whole life, no one is talking to him. People have stolen his ideas at the big company, which we can presume is Oscorp. He's a nobody. He, at a certain point is uh, bumped into by uh, with Spider-Man and he says that you're my guy, you're my eyes and ears on the street. Then they kind of become buddies. They become, you know, on the street friends until things naturally go a little bit wrong. His mum forgets his birthday and something tragic happens. And I quote, when he turns it on, it all lights up. Chris's face, just to describe it before you read it. Sorry, 
is of horror, shock, and, and more horror. So, Electro goes mad and starts trying to electrocute everybody because his mum forgets his birthday. This is, this is the way Jamie describes it. He's taking the piss. You, the first comment on this news story that I wrote up was, wait, so his mum forgets his birthday and he goes nuts. Brilliant. We've all done it. Forgetting Jamie Foxx's birthday. Oh, yeah, I forgot it. Yeah, I forgot it too. Actually, I didn't remember it this year either. When is it? Oh, God. Oh, no. He's going to come after us now. <laughs> He's going to make, make her electric... Oh, God. Didn't it, didn't He's going to turn electricity off. You, 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 you know a lot more about Spidey's comics. Yeah. Does this surprise I like you that they're, that they're going to be a kind of buddies for a while? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical about that. I wonder if, because he's being very, very open about something and they're usually very, very secretive about this, he might be... Uh, Yanking some planks. He might be. Okay, well... You never know. You never know. But uh, interesting casting. This one's more serious. Uh, Samuel Jackson has been cast in the real life, or the, what am I trying to say? Yeah, in the um, non-anime adaptation, as you might have guessed, uh, adaptation of Kite, which is a gloriously violent 60-minute anime uh, that was made, I think, in the late 90s. And this has been redone by his uh, director for Snakes on a Plane, who's called David R. Ellis, and they're creating Kite. Uh, they're doing it down in Joburg. And Samuel Jackson has confirmed that he's going to be in that, but not which role he will be playing. Finally, Quentin Tarantino has mentioned, or let slip, whilst again on the Django Unchained uh, interview trial, that he was up for, at one point, directing a Luke Cage movie before he went on to do Pulp Fiction, which I thought was pretty fascinating. Years and years and years ago. Years and years and years ago. And that would have starred Lawrence Fishburne, right? That's right, yeah. I mean, in many ways, I'm very glad he decided to do Pulp Fiction instead, don't get me wrong, but it's kind of a curiosity discovery there. Mm. The thing I love most about that story was what he calls Lawrence Fishburne. Him Larry Fish. Larry Fish. Yeah, um, I had Larry Lawrence, Fish and Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, he insisted you call him Fish when you meet him. Does he really? Yeah, he goes, "Hey, Fish." Cool. And you, uh, you look around and you go, "Oh, all right, you." What do you, you do? Hey, you are Fish. You are Hugh. Fish. Yeah, because we shot him for the um, our twentieth birthday special, recreating the, his his scene as Morpheus in the Matrix, and he goes, "Hey, Fish," and I'm thinking, "You're not Fish." You're Captain Miller from Event Horizon. Oh, and then goodness. I did another little tick <laughs> of my, I'm meeting the entire cast of Event Horizon. How many have you got left? Point. Um, a lot, to be <laughs> fair. A lot. I've done Sam Neill, uh, Lawrence Fishburne, uh, Jolie Richardson, I said hello to once. That counts. Close enough. Counts. Um, Sean Pertwee. Sean Pertwee, of course, the Pertwee. Uh, I've done Sean Pertwee. Who else have I done? Jason. Uh, Jason Isaacs. Yes, thank you. I haven't done Jack Noseworthy. I haven't done Richard T. Jones, who played Cooper. Let me see. Peter Marinker, don't care about him. Um, <gasps> Burning Man, don't care about him. Uh, and Girl on Monitor, I don't care about them. But the main cast, I've got about three more to do. It's the, the dream is in sight, Chris. I can, that book deal is so close. <laughs> it's so close. If Tony Hawk's can go around Ireland with a fridge, I can travel the world and meet the cast of Event Horizon. Anyway, that takes us neatly into Chris McQuarrie. How? <laughs> it takes us neatly into Chris McQuarrie, okay. Alan. Don't quibble. Um, he's one of the best screenwriters in the business. As we all know, he won an Oscar for his magnificent work on The Usual Suspects and has worked constantly with Brian Singer since on the likes of X-Men and Valkyrie. You all right, Phil? Yeah. You okay? Bit sneezy. Do you want to blow your nose? Yeah. Good. Uh, that movie introduced him to Tom Cruise, and since then the men have been creatively inseparable, a relationship that will soon see them make Mission Impossible 5 together. But first comes Jack Reacher, the adaptation of Lee Child's one shot. You okay, Phil? You all right? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sorry. Everything good? Okay. Yeah, no, good. Uh, first comes Jack Reacher, the adaptation of Lee Child's One Shot the Seas. Tom Cruise played the iconic Jack Reacher, and Macquarie takes the director's chair for the first time since Way of the Gun back in 2000. He came out to the pub booth recently to have a natter with me about that and all sorts. Thankfully, Phil wasn't there to make noise and clatter around like an idiot. Enjoy. 
But yes, I am delighted to welcome to the pod booth uh, Chris McQuarrie, uh, the writer and director of Jack Reacher. Um, and you must be delighted to hear that, that, that word attached to your name now, director, because it's, it's been a while. It's been 12 years, yeah. <laughs> it's been 12 years. Um, in that time, in that sort of Kubrickian, Malikian gap in your, on your CV from Way of the Gun till, until now, had you ever come close Were you, to directing again? Was there a project that ever got close to getting off the ground? There was one. Uh, it was the uh, Stanford Prison Experiment, which uh-huh. was supposed to happen right around the time Valkyrie happened and I had to choose between which one I was going to do Um, and Valkyrie was happening very swiftly and Stanford was very difficult to cast it was a large cast very uh, mostly young males and uh i wanted to do something where they they were lesser known mm-hmm. so it was pretty difficult to put together uh and the idea was i was just going to help set up valkyrie and then go off and do stanford and be done mm-hmm. uh but valkyrie sort of took on a life of its own it grew didn't it it grew very quickly yeah from uh what a 30 million dollar movie with you and brian and then tom came on board and Yes, and then <laughs> it just got bigger and bigger, and 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 never. Fortunately, it never really had to change. It never really had to compromise. We just got to play with bigger toys. Um, but then my role as a producer became more and more pronounced. I was my intention was to be a producer in name only. I had developed the script. I'd put the movie together, uh, and the idea was that I was going to hand the script off to Brian and then just go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found myself suddenly in Germany, and I was working more as a day to day actual producer on the movie um and by the end of it was was still there producing the movie then post-production went on for the better part of a year okay so stanford obviously never got back off the ground again that was never something you wanted to revisit well by the time i came by the time i had sort of come out of valkyrie it this the idea of doing this much smaller movie was something that i no longer i wasn't waking up dying to do it uh and i and so i didn't think it was the the best idea. I didn't think it was the it was the right thing to do, only because I wasn't yearning to do it. Okay. Uh, and I felt that if I wasn't completely compelled to do it, I was just directing for the sake of directing, and that wasn't a good idea. Because <laughs> it's in- it's interesting because obviously you came up with Brian Singer. You know, you guys worked together right from the beginning. Yes. And Brian has clearly gravitated towards a very commercial cinema over the years and uh, so it's interesting that two of you don't really uh, have the same taste necessarily I mean you've worked with Brian throughout yes but where he would go to Jack the Giant Slayer and X-Men you did not want to do that no uh, it, you know and, and initially when he he had initially approached me to write uh, X-Men from scratch uh, I really couldn't understand the thinking behind it only because we we had never really talked about that sort of movie and he he very astutely explained to me what his long-term strategy was, and it involved movies like X-Men that were going to give him the ability to make the movies that he really wanted to make. The, the trick there was that the movie that he really wanted to make wasn't clearly defined. He had sort of a very general idea of a big science fiction movie that he wanted to do, but it was more of a setting and it was more, but Brian tends to think in terms of abstract visuals and, mm. and, uh, and concepts, uh, story and character all come later and they come as a way to sort of congeal his, his more aesthetic ideas. So X-Men gave him the ability to make that movie, but then it was still difficult to find a home for that movie he was ultimately searching yes. to do. And that became Logan's run. 
Okay. And so Logan's run became sort of the perfect vessel for him to pour in all of his bigger ideas and the, the, the setting that he wanted to do and the, the scope of the movie that he wanted all sort of fit nicely into Logan's run. And then ironically enough, Superman came along and, mm. and became a pair of golden handcuffs for Brian. Now he had Superman and he was obligated to do a second Superman and Logan's run couldn't fit neatly in yeah. between those two movies. And what ended up happening was he he had to let Logan's run go. And with it, he had to let go all of these ideas that he'd carried around for, for so long. Uh, yeah, which is a, a massive shame. I'd love, to, I'd love to have seen his version. Yeah. Well, funny enough, it's it's still out there and it still sort of comes full it circle. It might circle around at some point. Yeah, you you just never know. And that's 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 made life a lot easier than it used to be you you sort of felt like every shot was your last shot every movie was your last movie now i treat every setup like it's my last setup <laughs> uh i i'm i'm happy to have the work that i have and i treat every day as though it's my last day on the film mm-hmm. uh the every day every day is my last day with whomever i'm having a relationship we're going to have some perilous falling out the next day or i'll no longer be of use and when you when you approach the business that way you, you there's a certain amount of security in that in that kind of thinking I was uh, going back to what we said here about you know your your love and I guess for smaller movies mm-hmm. and the stuff you wanted to get off the ground after way of the gun and uh, the interesting thing about Jack Reacher is it's it's a relatively small film it's a Tom Cruise movie it's a thriller yes but he's not climbing up the tallest building in the world or leaping away from explosions or <laughs> doing things yeah. you normally expect Tom Cruise to do. So you, you still wanted to keep it small and self-contained. Yeah, we really wanted to have our feet on the ground. The Reacher novels are very much like that. It's really about a man and his mind and, uh, and a real world in which the danger is very real and you yourself could be embroiled in that. What I wanted was the feeling of the audience sitting there and watching the movie and thinking to themselves, I could get into this sort of trouble, and if I did, I would want this guy to come along. I've grown tired of movies feeling as though they had to become bigger and more spectacular and more unreal in order to thrill the audience. I felt that it had created for us a really unique opportunity that once upon a time was not unique at all, which was, I could put Tom Cruise in a car and have him drive the car very fast and that will look totally unique. <laughs> nobody's really doing that anymore. Uh, and, and I can have Tom fight a bunch of guys and I can stand yeah. back with the camera the way I prefer to shoot action. And that will suddenly feel unique because it's, again, not the way that fight scenes are being shot. Part of what makes all of that possible is you're working with Tom. You're working mm-hmm. with somebody who's able to physically do those things and take the risks it's not, it's not an e- it's not an easy thing to do the, the car chase obviously is very dangerous but more so are things like you know the scene where he's in that bathroom right before yeah. the, the two guys attack him with the baseball bat that's all done without special effects that guy walks up and hits the door jam right behind Tom's head and misses his head by a fraction of an inch mm-hmm. when we were rehearsing that scene and with stuntmen uh, Tom and I were sitting on ladders looking down into the set okay. so that we could observe how everything was going to go before Tom actually put himself in the scene. The stuntman missed the door jam and hit the, <laughs> hit Tom's stand-in right in the back of the head <laughs> oh with an aluminum bat <laughs> while we were watching. 
and I thought, well, that's the end of this idea. <laughs> <laughs> and to, to his credit, Tom looked at me and said, uh, we're, we're going to have to make some adjustments to, <laughs> to make that work. <laughs> So was it a rubber bat in the end, or did he just change it, well, the Well, it was or... a rubber bat, but as the prop guy pointed out, he said, I don't know why you're bothering with a rubber bat. Rubber bat, aluminum bat, if he hits Tom, he's going to knock him into next week. It's, it That bat broke the door jam. It was still quite significant. <laughs> it, it would have... The day would have been over. Yeah. Oh, no, it would have been. <laughs> and the, the, and, the, the, week, and the, the week after that. Yeah. And, and the headlines would have been interesting. Yes. <laughs> as we were replacing Tom's teeth, which had been knocked out of the front of his head. Absolutely. And that's a scene that um, is, a, is a Macquarie creation. That's it, that 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 confrontation. Well, the the it's it's a I, I, it's a Macquarie Cruise confrontation. The the initial idea of Tom being in that bathroom and getting hit in the back of the head, and the the, the fight beginning that way, was something that came up just as I was improvising the scene on the page. When Tom read it, he said, "There's a real opportunity for humor here." Yeah, and Tom was the one who recognized this idea of a very confined space and two people having chosen a very poor environment <laughs> in which to fight Reacher. Tom said, what I really want is I want a scene where they would have they would have had me. Hmm. I want this character to have flaws. I don't want him to be perfect. I want people to be able to sneak up on him. They just made a very poor tactical decision. If they just let me walk one step further out into the hallway... That would have been it. And they're not really fighting me. They're fighting the, the bathroom. And yes. they're fighting each other. Yeah. And people watching that from the outside as we were putting the scene together were scratching their heads and saying, this is just, this is really weird. We don't know that this is going to work. Is this going to be kind of goofy? We had to be very careful in terms of just how far we could we could push that idea. And what we ended up with was a really beautiful effect that I don't I don't think we would have had had I been doing this film with anybody else, I would have gone with, for straightforward and right, violent yeah. and yeah. eye gouging. And <laughs> what happens now is the audience seems to react to a sense that Reacher is really doomed. And there is a split second moment where you feel they're just going to kill this guy. Yeah. And it suddenly dawns on you that that's not going to happen. You slowly watch the scene turn from something extremely brutal and dark. Yeah to something strangely funny and the emotional result of that is is really unique and that's that's the product of working with Tom I love that scene it's, it's the uh, the two stooges essentially versus Reacher which, which is great and uh, it's interesting that, that, that both Tom and yourself decided to to change in that way and change Reacher's character because there's this perception it's not always true mm -hmm. in the novels uh, he does make mistakes he is a fallible character yes but there's this perception of Reacher maybe from people who haven't read the novels that he is infallible that he's perfect that he's the guy who will get out of any situation with his with his fists and it's interesting that you that you went for that uh, it's well it's interesting to uh, to read what the fans say in their in their authoritative voice about what Reacher <laughs> would and would not do uh, and how quickly they disqualify themselves as Reacher experts. Uh, one comment that I read on the internet was that the, the one of the scenes in the commercial where Reacher confronts the kid Gary at the auto parts store and says, oh, you know, Reacher would never do that. He'd never talk to that guy. He'd never waste his time talking to that person. He would go to somebody else, find his way around it. Meanwhile, that scene's taken word for word from the book. Yeah. Uh, we we were very careful to to maintain that character and if 
we couldn't find a moment in the book that supported it, we would go looking in the other books to make sure our are we okay here? Are there instances where he's done things like Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, the, the scene outside the bar where he gets in the fight with Jeb and those five guys, in the book, that's all in his head. It's Reacher thinking through how I'm going to fight these five guys. It's done in that same sort of conversational way, but it's Reacher more or less thinking yeah. it through himself. The Obviously, the only way to communicate those ideas to the audience, to get the audience familiar with Reacher's thought process, there, there are really two ways. One, he could have a funny conversation with those people. Or you could do something like The Last Samurai, where he's envisioning it in slow motion and you see everything that he's gonna do. That's not our movie. Yeah. So you're you're really in in that binary choice, you're left with the way that we did it. We were then very careful to go and look at other books where sure enough, there are moments where he says, This is what I'm gonna do and you weren't a reacher expert though when you when you came onto this project. Had you no. had you heard of the character? Had... I I had not heard of the character until Don Granger brought me the book. Okay, and uh, what did he bring to you? Did he bring you this project, or did he bring this nebulous idea of doing a Jack Reacher film? He brought me one shot. He had been through the entire series and was very adamant that the first book should be one shot for very good reasons. There was very very well thought out rationale there's another book uh, the first book of the series is called The Killing Floor which takes place in Georgia Reacher is arrested right at the beginning of the movie and embroiled into a murder investigation and ultimately you discover that the the victim in this murder one of the victims in this series of murders is his brother yeah. and through that you learn a lot about Reacher his growing up and whatnot. it's a great introduction to Reacher on the page cinematically however it's Reacher almost throughout the book explaining to people who he is and how he lives <laughs> as opposed to our learning about it visually yeah. or learning about it through other people. In the case of One Shot, the, the story starts before Reacher enters into it and it, it begins in a very dramatic and very visceral way. That sniper attack is mm. is, is big and it's, it's, uh, and it's very powerful, very emotional scene. And, it, and, and it, it was very easy to write. It was challenging to shoot, but it was very easy to determine how I was going to visualize that the other thing being that the that it's not written in uh in a first person point of view yeah. many of the reacher books are yeah this one is written in an omniscient point of view because lee child wants the audience to get ahead of reacher in the story he wants the audience the reader to know things that reacher can't know and because of that you're able to learn about Reacher before Reacher ever enters into the story. Mm -hmm. And it allows us to honor what the studio really wanted. Their only mandate was they wanted a more mythic characterization of Reacher than had been attempted in, in previous drafts. Maybe Mission Impossible 5 is, is on the horizon. So yeah. if a second Reacher came around, do you have a priority? Do you know the order in which you might be doing things without remorses on there as well? Um, it, it really comes down to... Uh, the planets aligning between myself and Tom. My notion would be that uh, if this movie was very successful on December 22nd, I would immediately compel the studio to <laughs> to trigger development on the next Reacher right. thing and, and bank it uh, so that whenever Tom was available, the, the script would be ready. I think if we ever got into a situation where there wasn't a script ready and Tom was suddenly available, it would be very hard to line those things up. Sure. One of the reasons why the movie works the way that it does is because we were able to develop that script not in a hurry, really were able to take our time, and we developed, with, we developed it with very little interference. And when Tom was ready to go, the script was ready. We weren't 
rewriting it or playing with it a lot while we were making it. That's sort of the ideal. The future for me, uh, in terms of my my immediate commitments, there's there's room for that. Yeah. Um, if if mission five suddenly happens, everything gets pushed back for <laughs> what what I had talked about with uh, uh, with Jeff Goldsmith. That idea post Valkyrie of I will stay in the business so long as someone asks me to stay here. <laughs> Instead of pursuing work, I'm taking the work that's being offered to me. That's a double-edged sword in and of itself, because now what's being offered to me is a much bigger movie than I ever thought yeah. I would be contemplating. That's that's very daunting, and it's one that has to follow the most successful movie, not only of the franchise, but uh, un, un, until Skyfall, it was the most successful movie in the genre. Hmm. It's that's a that's a tall order. <laughs> the, the nice thing is that when you look at all four of the Mission movies, they've They've left open certain doors uh, that that I'm very keen to explore. I think it's right up your alley. Um, but but uh, the last question, Chris, is um, have you thought about, to, just to save time, you have Tom Cruise combining Mission Impossible 5 and the next Jack Reacher. I'm not saying have Ethan Hunt meet <laughs> Jack Reacher, but for example, you could shoot one day on Mission Impossible and then just nip around the corner with, with Tom and, and do a quick uh, Reacher scene. I, I can say from experience that, that uh, Tom is physically capable of doing that as long as one movie takes place entirely during the day and the other one takes place entirely at night we can pull it off Grant I wish you all the best thanks for coming thank you very much cheers uh, as this is the last podcast of the year we won't be back until January the 11th uh, unless the Mayans have something to say about that we've got quite a bit of ground to cover in our review section so let's start with Jack Reacher shall we who wants to take this one Sure, I Helen, will. Helen, you'll Hi. take Jack Reacher. I would. Um, uh, <laughs> steady, steady now, steady. So this is uh, the adaptation of obviously the best-selling series of books, uh, in particular One Shot. Jack Reacher is uh, called upon after a sniping incident. Five people are killed. Um, the police appear to have a guy banged to rights. There's all the evidence lined up against him, and he says, get me Jack Reacher. And that's all he says before he's beaten to a pulp and put in a coma. Jack Reacher promptly turns up, played by Tom Cruise, and uh, and everyone says, well, why is he asking for you? Presumably you're his friend or, or something. And it's clear that Jack Reacher is not his friend. He's he's there to put him away. But is the case as open and shut as it appears? Question mark. No. It isn't. It you're isn't. Kidding. It isn't. You're kidding. <laughs> and so uh, Cruise has to work with Rosamund Pike, who's the uh, accused lawyer, um, in order to figure out what's really going on. While coming up against all sorts of bad guys. All sorts of bad guys and, uh, and dealing led, out all sorts of punches. Led by Werner Herzog. Yes, who plays the Zek. Yeah. The problem is, I mean, with that is that, you know, everyone's so excited to see Werner Herzog on film that we're all just kind of delighted every time he comes on screen instead of intimidated. Uh, which is a bit of a shame. <laughs> oh, I know. I find him quite intimidating. He, he is, objectively. You know, he's playing the character well, but it's just like, oh, brilliant. It's Werner it's Herzog. Werner Herzog. Yeah. <laughs> If you've ever if you've ever asked him who his favourite Muppet is, uh-huh. you'll know that he can be quite intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> I do not know the Muppets, and I do not know Jim Henson. He told me he sees oh. he sees only four films uh, a year. Wow! And he doesn't know who Bruce Willis is and all sorts. Of Goodness. So, yeah. He's me anyway. He'd be okay, going. so if you've in, if you've interviewed him, then you totally buy him as as an intimidating sort. Uh, yeah. Oh, he's lovely, as he said himself. I am a fluffy husband. Um, but yeah, he's he's quite he's quite nice in the flesh. But he just has this disconcerting stare, and he uses the good funny with the sec. But he does. Uh, anyway, I mean, yes. the standout of the bad guys in this movie was Jai Courtney, who's yes. going to be soon seen in A Good Day to Die Hard, and he plays Charlie, who's an assassin who kind of goes up against uh, 
Jack Reacher. It's a bit of a, a bit of a breakthrough for him, I think. Actually, I think he's so. been sort of you know gathering his momentum, and this year is going to see him really break out. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say um, he's kind of a, a, an American version of Matthias Schoenarts from Rust and Bone. I thought they've they've got the same kind of thing going on somehow. Same kind of face. Yeah, somehow. Okay, maybe there's a timeshare. Maybe there is. That would be interesting. Anyway, um, this I thought was was pretty good. Actually, I thought it was uh, really entertaining. Um, it's a more. It feels not quite like the books. Um, you know, obviously, Cruz is a different Reacher. We've talked to death, and everyone's talked to death about the difference in height and size between him and Jack Reacher. But he does have the kind of charisma, the authority, and the intelligence that I think you need to play Reacher. So it's not that he's a bad version of the character at all in the final analysis but it does give the, the film for me a slightly different energy to the books it gives it um i think it's it feels slightly more serious and slightly more kind of um gritty than i think the books feel sometimes they feel more of a romp at times and this one has a real kind of seriousness to it and there's a great car chase throughout in, in the middle we don't think of reacher as a character particularly associated with cars but the car chase is here i mean the sound is really kind of muscular it feels like you're in a proper old kind of um, you know, Steve McQueen kind of situation with with big old American muscle cars going on. It's it's a really really good scene, um, and and the, the whole thing I think works pretty darn well. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a it unfolds like a seventies thriller. It's, yeah, we give yeah. it four stars. Uh, it takes its sweet time. It doesn't go anywhere in a hurry, which is very Jack Reachery. Absolutely, but um, it also doesn't feel kind of too languid. I don't think. No, it doesn't. I mean, there are a couple of scenes for me that didn't quite work. I wasn't entirely sold on uh, on Rosamund Pike's character Helen Agreed. at times. Um, uh, no, no offense to Helen's Thanks. everywhere, um, but you know, for me, Cruz is fine in this role. Mm. Uh, a lot of people have written them off beforehand. Um, I frankly, and I think I said this to Chris McQuarrie in the podcast uh, interview, I don't think a six foot five inch, 250 pound battery ram of a guy works in the universe that McQuarrie sets up. Uh, yeah. I don't think he works. There, there are scenes where he would just literally tower over everybody in the uh, in the scene. Uh, and maybe one day someone 20, 30 years time will find an actor who is six foot five inches, world famous and can you know play Jack Reacher as he is in the books. But until until that happens... We've got Tom Cruise, and mm. he's fine. Yeah. Is um, Macquarie a natural fit for this material as a director? Because, I mean, usual suspects you think of as like a labyrinthine puzzler, and this is more of a sledgehammer type. I wouldn't say that. No? No, there's a, there's a no, lot of plotting not. going on in this, actually. I think it's it's got a, lo- a lot of kind of twists and turns along the way to the, yeah. to the finish, and it is very much a mind game. It's not just somebody punching people until they get the right answer. Um, you know, it, it mm. does feel like a, a Reacher book in that sense. Yeah. A Reacher is a sledgehammer, but he's also, as Lee Child posited right at the beginning, he's Sherlock Holmes, but just a Sherlock Holmes who's built like a brick shithouse. So there are moments here where he does deduce things and outwits the, the cop played by David Oyelowo. I'd like to say very quickly, um, I had no knowledge of Jack Reacher as a book character or anything like that, but I loved this film. I really enjoyed it. And I know it has its flaws, but I thought it was taut, I thought it was tight, I enjoyed it throughout a solid thriller. If you go and pay your money and go see this film, I really don't think you'd be disappointed unless, of course, you have baggage and you, you know Jack Reacher from reading the books or you have your own decisions about Tom Cruise. I had no expectations of this film and it delivered for me. So, yeah, I really hope that Macquarie and his beautiful dialogue, I think we need to mm. underline that because I really enjoyed hearing... A lot of which is read from the book. ...is kind of sparks uh, straight off the screen. Really enjoyed it. I hope they make another movie. Fantastic. So four stars for Jack Reacher, which is out on Boxing Day, December 26th, in case you weren't aware when Boxing Day is. Uh, now let's move on to a film that's already out. Uh, this is out, came out on Thursday, the 20th. It's Ang Lee's Life of Pi, his adaptation of the Yan Martel Booker Prize winner, about a young boy who survives a shipwreck and has to live in a life raft for the Bengal Tiger. At least that's what it is on the surface. Phil, what are your thoughts? Well, <clears throat> it's come out, as you say, there's been an enormous... Um, 
affection and kudos and praise for this film. So there's bound to be some form of backlash. So I'm going to start with a backlash against the backlash. People that don't like this film need to think about themselves because <laughs> I think genuinely you come out of this with such a swell of just a real sense. You know, that the term love, life affirming has become such a cliche, but it genuinely does affirm what it is to be human, this film. And it's such a powerful, passionate poem of a movie. It's such a... The, the visuals are heavily CG and there's 3D, all the things that you think might spark people and go... But what Ang Lee does is he roots it in realism. So even in the even in the kind of fantastical elements of the story about a boy, Suraj Sharma, um, who's a newcomer, um, does so beautifully as this as this young kid Pai who who finds himself in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on a lifeboat. His family's been sunk, moving their zoo to Canada from India um, with a Bengali tiger called Richard Parker, an injured zebra, an orangutan, and a hyena. Um, it's an allegory, but. It works on different levels, and uh, it, it's so beautiful. And it's a film about survival. It's a film about God and religion and, and, and all of those things. But even just as a visual feast, it's, it's spectacular. And as I say, he roots it in realism. So it isn't, it isn't a kind of a trippy John Cartry world. It's kind of a real, a real world that you can oh, relate there, to. There are moments when it There is. absolutely are, and he buys those. He earns those moments by, by keeping it grounded. Um, it's framed with um, the greater Fan Khan, a Bollywood actor who's phenomenal. We saw him in The Amazing Spider-Man. Well, there were two links to The Amazing Spider-Man, yeah. really, enough from this movie, because Irfan Khan played... Um, a character was originally going to be the proto-galbum when they were talking about The Amazing Spider-Man. And, of course, Peter Parker's dad is... Richard, Richard Parker. Parker the time. So there's, mm. It's weird. It's it a semi-sequel. Semi <laughs> that is a very strange connection. The Amazing um, Spider-Man is a film about God and religion and it made me... <laughs> it reaffirmed my, my love of life as well in many, many ways. Um, He's stuck so, on a boat with a, with a green goblin. Yeah, um, electro, constantly electric. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, Rafe Spall's very good. That framing device could have been clunky, but it, it's beautiful. And when they, when they revert back to it... Um, it's really emotional. It's really mm. powerful. It's mm. not a film that drives things down your throat. It's not got big swells in music to tell you how to feel. You just feel things. Um, and uh, it's interesting that Booker Prize winners tend to tend to make great book adaptations. Mid Midnight's Children's out next week. There's two in the week, which is kind of strange. Um, I didn't think they could ever make this as a movie. No. I've got to say, when we heard they were making it, I just thought, this is not going to work. How's that going to work? But, um, you know, using long takes, there's 80 minutes of effect shots in this film. 700 shots, though, which mm. is much, much less than a big blockbuster because he leaves the camera rolling. So it doesn't dazzle you. It lets you see things. It actually believes in its own visuals. Mm. Um, and that really makes it such a trip. Um, and some of the visual visuals are just breathtaking. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's got the best uh, meerkats uh, this side of the comparethemarket.com adverts. Wow, you, that's, you say? that's really... That's high praise. That's the way to talk about Life of Pi, Chris, definitely. Yeah. That's the poster quote. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, th I, I would like to echo pretty much all of that. I thought this was stunningly beautiful. I, I saw it in 3D, but I actually don't think you'd lose much with the 2D. It was good 3D. So if you're seeing it, even if you're a naysayer, I think it's still worth seeing in 3D. But it's still going to look absolutely stunning because just the colours, the, the 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 design, it's all taken from the natural world, and it's yeah. it's like watching one of those David Attenborough documentaries, but with kind of this magical story of survival over the top. Um, absolutely an incredible film, and I think we need to possibly retire the word unfilmable because between this and things like Midnight's Children and of course the upcoming Cloud Atlas and of course One Shot, they <laughs> said it couldn't be made. Um, you know, it's, it's, it may not be the case anymore. If you get a filmmaker good enough, and I think Ang Lee is, is absolutely the right person for something like this. He's, he's a guy who can sort of cut right to the heart of it. I mean, this is the guy who, when he was making Hulk, presented his effects team with, what was it, a piece of wood with some lichen on it? 
uh, and said, that's the texture I'm going for. Mm. Um, you know, this is a guy who's clearly in touch with uh, the deeper things in life and it works brilliantly here. I just think we don't normally shout out to FX companies, but I, I think Rhythm and Hughes and MPC were involved heavily in this and I think they're worth, it's worth name checking them because their work is phenomenal. Indeed, indeed. And it's uh, five stars for Life of Pi. Uh, fantastic. I don't think it's going to be an Oscar frontrunner. Though, I don't think so. No, I don't it may be too low-key, but you know, on quality it should be up there. We shall see. Uh, Pitch Perfect is up next, which is a fun and effervescent comedy about the world of a cappella singing, Helen. A cappella singing. <laughs> uh, the anti-glee in many ways, isn't it? Uh, sort of, yeah. It's kind of glee meets bridesmaids, I guess. That's uh, definitely how it's being marketed over here. With, with, yes. The trainers are showing exclusively Rebel Wilson yes. who was in Bridesmaids. It's very strange. Ignoring the star of the film, Anna Kendrick. I actually saw the bus uh, go past earlier and you almost can't pick out Anna Kendrick in, in the lineup, even if you know she's there and she's the, meant to be the star of the film. Very strange. But um, yeah, it is a really, really good comedy, this. So Anna Kendrick is the kind of cool girl. She goes off to college um, and her college is filled with these people who are into a cappella singing and she doesn't quite understand it and certainly doesn't want to get involved. Um, but the kind of uh, underdog girl group um, uh, is basically re- re- uh, recruiting members and they basically force her to kind of join them. She's kind of uh, bullied into it almost and uh, basically joins this group and has to try and sing and beat the boys who always win the a cappella singing competitions because they have the falsettos and also the basses. They have more range, whereas the girls find it slightly more difficult to do these kind of massive sweeping arrangements. So uh, luckily for them, Andrew Kendrick brings in some new kind of stylings, shakes things up a bit uh, with the help of other new members, including Rebel Wilson, who is a lot better here than she was in Bridesmaids. I find her a bit annoying in Bridesmaids, and I actually really Usually. liked her in this. So um, I think this is this could be a bit of a breakout for her. But I mean, everybody in this, you know, Brittany Snow, uh, Anna Camp, the whole cast are just really, really on form. And it's a very, very funny and very smart script. This was produced by Elizabeth Banks, or she's one of the producers, and she also appeared in a, a smaller role as a commentator at some of these competitions and, uh, and and again it's just a really sparky funny film what are you going to come out singing in this one <laughs> ooh I like the way you work it no diggity no diggity no way did they yeah that's in there they do oh, I love that it has a lot of that there's a final as you might expect Glee style sing off uh, at the end I personally found I don't want to ruin anyone's enjoyment here I found their last one a little slightly off but other than that it's all bloody catchy and seriously mm. fun um, I thought at times that maybe um, there was a little bit of that. You talk about Bridesmaids. Bridesmaids for me was pretty much all good apart from that scene where they have the the I need to go to the bathroom scene, which is just so yeah. pathetic, basically. I'm just going to say I just think it's pathetic and I hate seeing it in an otherwise very funny, very clever film. This also has a couple of scenes like that when I kind of went, really, you were doing so well. Do you have to do this kind of toilet humour? So by no means let that put you off. There is so much good stuff in it and it is so funny. But be warned, there are a couple of, uh, you know, I made a fart noise jokes. Still, four British stars, remember? I like that scene in Bridesmaids. Do you? Mm. Does it remind you of a time? And I like, and I like that scene in uh, Pitch Perfect. Say no more. <laughs> there's, no, there's no accounting for literal taste, is there? Mmm, taste. Um... No, I, I like those scenes. I don't think... Uh, yeah, Not to my taste. I'm with Ali. It's like Monty Python never happened. See, we oh, do see. disagree all the time. We do disagree, yeah. you're wrong <laughs> so regularly. Um, yeah, this movie was a big surprise for me. I really, really liked it. I thought in many ways, if it had been just pushed slightly into another... in, in Slightly further in one direction, it could have almost been the dodgeball. Uh, the equivalent of dodgeball yeah. for, the, for this world. And it doesn't quite go there. I think ultimately it's a little bit too scattershot 
the the focus is on Anna Kendrick's character, but there are so many characters around her that the movie almost like a, a, a kid has had too much you know sugar is going oh I like her character oh well this character this character and if it just focused on one I think it might have worked more and I've had slightly more of a, an acidic edge but it is for me I thought it was the anti-glee I mean I've, I watched the episode of Glee once and I've only just replaced my eyes uh, <laughs> but this this movie worked for me and who knew all these people had, had such pipes they're, they're yeah, seriously the singing is talented. actually very very good indeed oh yeah absolutely seriously talented people so uh, four stars for that yeah yeah Absolutely. Pitch perfect. Not quite perfect, but close enough. Uh, next up is West of Memphis. Uh, Peter Jackson produced a documentary about the West Memphis Three who were wrongly convicted of the murder of three children uh, years ago and were acquitted last year on what can only be described as uh, a, a strange technicality. Helen, you're, you're a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, uh, the... the uh well, it's it's just one of those torturous processes where you you just you, you look back at the evidence and you're like, I don't understand how this led to them being convicted in the first place, um, and you have to kind of deconstruct it, and and that's what's essentially happened, and that's what the filmmakers chronicle how this how they were convicted and how then the conviction was was eventually thankfully overturned. Um, yeah, the the issue of of I mean, we've seen films like this before, you know, obviously the Thin Blue Line. Uh, Errol Morris, uh, that, that kind of thing. You know, th- there have been stories about the American justice system and it, it's occasionally horrendous miscarriages of justice uh, before, but this is a particularly astonishing one and a particularly impressive one. Well, more pertinently, this is a, uh, the, the case of the West Memphis Three, who are Jason Baldwin, Damien Eccles and Jesse Miskelly, uh, has been chronicled before in the Paradise Lost mm-hmm. trilogy of documentaries. And it's interesting that the West of Memphis, which is produced by uh, Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh, who actually got involved um, with the defence case yeah. uh, were very much part of the defence team in around about 2007 and the documentary kind of emerged from that as a, as a way of, of their presenting the evidence uh, that would acquit the, the, the trio to the, to the wider world because they came up against the Arkansas legal system and they just every door was shut yeah. and they just couldn't get anywhere with this with this appeal at all um, so they decided to, to mount the documentary which, uh, directed by Amy Burke who directed Deliver Us From Evil a few years ago um, which was which tackled the Catholic Church and and uh, this is a this is a fascinating documentary, and it's fascinating as well in terms of its timing. Not just the way it presents the evidence, um, which is so overwhelming against mm. the the guys being guilty, um, but also presents, interestingly enough, from a legal point of view, uh, a very credible alternate suspect, yes. which I didn't think they'd be able to do, but they can. They essentially say that there's, there's another person, and that this person is pretty much nailed on to have done it. Uh, I'm pretty sure that went through a team of lawyers. That must have gone through a team of lawyers. And, um, and last but not least, the documentary was actually around. Amy Berg was filming the documentary in the day the three got out um, on, a, on a strange technicality, which means that they were still considered guilty in the eyes of the Arkansas legal system, mm-hmm. but they retained their right to, to declare their innocence. Uh, so... It's a, it's a very strange one. Essentially, they weren't going to get out anytime soon. The, the appeal trial, the appeals uh, system was going to take eat them up for another two to three years. They've been on death row, or Damien, Damien Eccles has been on death row for about 18 years, yeah. I think. And I think they just decided to take the deal and, and, and go for it. Um, it's a fascinating documentary. It has talking heads on there that I didn't think you would ever see. People who were very intimately involved with the case. Um, saying things that they've never said before, neither to the police or indeed to the Paradise Lost team. And it's just a, a fascinating documentary. For my money, the best Peter Jackson movie out this month. Uh, we give it five stars. It's, it is a, an engrossing documentary. 
How did they get involved with these people, Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh, in the first place? They, they saw Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost got them involved. Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh, um, who are partners in real life, uh, watched the documentary, went, well, this is clearly a miscarriage of justice, and they went on the internet expecting that the three would have been acquitted by now and realised that that, hadn't, that wasn't the case. So Fran uh, contacted Laurie Davis, who is Damien Eccles' wife. They, they met when he was in prison via communication, and then they got married. And uh, they became friends, and then became involved in the in the defence case, and then decided at some point the idea would be to present this this documentary as as, as evidence. And uh, I think the very first thing they filmed is actually in a documentary. The idea that, they, that these three children were killed years and years and years ago, um, and had lacerations and bruises in her body that the, the police uh, declared were stab wounds, and they weren't stab wounds; they were snapping turtle bites. Because the three young children sadly had been dumped in a river, and. Um, and uh, snappy turtles at that time of year were yeah. just taking chunks out of people's flesh. And that was the very first thing they filmed to, to prove that that was the case. And they had uh, forensic scientists basically declare that that was the case. And uh, But one of the forensic, I think, forensic scientists on the team of the prosecutors basically refused to ever acknowledge that evidence or or uh, it, it, even its, its relevance. It's, 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 fr- it's frightening. Yeah, it, it, is, it is really terrifying. Basically, I think the problem with... Uh, with some of these cases, especially these capital cases, is if the evidence isn't introduced in the original trial, it's incredibly difficult to ever introduce it afterwards. So if, as often happens, um, you have a bad lawyer first time around, that's it, you know, yeah. and that's that's what's led to a lot of the, the problems later on. It's, it's a really, really fascinating look at just yeah. how involved these cases can get and how how difficult it is to take them apart, no matter how poorly constructed the, the prosecution was. Well, of course, they, they also had a confession, from Damien Maskelly, who was then later revealed to be borderline mentally deficient. Mm-hmm. So was that actually admissible in court, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. So it's, it's about two and a half hours long, and it is uh, fascinating, if you, especially if, you, if you've seen Paradise Lost, I'm sure it's fascinating. If you haven't, it will really open your eyes to, to this case, and that's five stars for that one. So quite a week for five-star movies. Um, we've got a lot of stuff to get through because we're not coming back for a couple of weeks, so we're going to race through this stuff. There's the... Irish sci-fi flick uh, Grabbers which is out on Boxing Day very very limited release in the UK and then it comes out on DVD and Blu-ray uh, very very soon after um, we're going to have the writer uh, John Wright and the sorry we're going to have the writer and director John Wright and Kevin Lehane on the podcast uh, when we come back right. so, so look forward to that one uh, and that's about uh, Richard Coyle playing a, a Garda in, uh, in Ireland and Aliens Invade and essentially the, the premise is you have to get drunk in order to stop being eaten by these aliens. So it's a, it's a riotous a sci-fi comedy. Chris, this is terrifying. Terrorists. We're both teetotalers. I know, teetotal, teetotal Irish people. It's, it's, it's very, very strange. Listen, I'll do it. If, if I have to, if it's, it keeps me alive, then yeah, by all means, I'll have, I'll have a wicked. Fair enough. But only half a wicked. I'll have the other half. That'll probably be enough, to be fair. <laughs> um, safety not guaranteed. We had Colin Trafaro on uh, earlier on. It's fun and whimsical sci-fi, decent performances from the likes of uh, Aubrey Plaza and uh, Mark Duplass, uh, and it's, it's good fun. It's not quite the sci-fi head trip that you might think. It's more of a, it's a very low-key, nicely whimsical sci-fi turn, so check that one out. And then it's also Parental Guidance, the Billy Crystal Bette Midler comedy, am I right? Bette Midler? Yes. And someone said that was like the apocalypse. It was, and I love Billy Crystal. You love Billy Crystal? It's a bad film. Okay. Please, I, I would advise people not to see it. <laughs> okay. I have not much else to say about it. Uh, Midnight's Children, which Phil says is also unfilmable, is coming out on Boxing Day. Helen said it's unfilmable, but I agreed. But you it agreed. isn't, because they filmed it. Okay. <laughs> QED. <laughs> there you go. Salman Rushdie wrote it. He also wrote the screenplay. Second book of... This is the Booker of Bookers, this book. 
Um, and it's coming out a week after Life Pi, another book winner, and it's we gave it four stars. Very good, very good. And then we have Jerry Butler uh, in Playing for Keeps on January 4th, and opening on January 1st, we have Juan Antonio Bayona's The Impossible, a drama about a family's struggle to survive the Boxing Day tsunami. Um, can't go into too much detail about this one, um, but, but me, I, th- I thought this film was, was fantastic. Um, I know you're a big fan of this film, Chris. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me who's most likely to be uh, Oscar, Oscar, Oscar Woods. It's a true story about a Spanish family who were caught up in the Boxing Day tsunami. They've changed the, the identity of the family. I think so the film might resonate more commercially around the world. So it's Hugh McGregor, Naomi Watts and their three sons. The lead son is played by Tom Holland, who is the son of the comedian Dominic Holland. Do anyone know that, that Dominic Holland is? He's, he's, he's funny. So, um, uh, so this is Tom Holland, who was in Billy Elliot for 18 months, but this is his film debut. And he is astonishing as the, the kid who basically has to bear the emotional brunt of the aftermath of the tsunami. The tsunami sequences are astonishing, recreated largely, practically, in a huge water tank in Thailand um, with uh, Juan Antonio, Antonio Bayona, who last directed The Orphanage, um, really mining true horror. The, the, the sequence of the tsunami hitting, the aftermath with cars and trees and corpses floating in dirty water. It's just gobsmacking. Um, Naomi Watts and Tom Holland have been mooted as Oscar contenders. They're both astonishing. Uh, but surprisingly for me, it was Ewan McGregor who who really resonated most with me in this movie. There's, there's one sequence in particular that just destroyed me when I was watching it and has continued to destroy me whenever I've been thinking about it. And he's, he's fantastic, as, as natural and unaffected as I've seen him uh, in a long, long time. In fact, I think he's had a good year, Ewan McGregor, quite frankly. And I know a lot of people don't like Salmon Fishing in the Emma, but I thought he was, he was good in that, very, very solid. And uh, yeah, I, I think this is a fantastic film. I think we give it four stars. I'd probably agree with that. Uh, and do check it out on January 1st. I think it could well be a big Oscar contender. Okay. And uh, it's with Juan Antonio Bayona that we leave you. The Spanish director of The Brilliant Orphanage, as, as I've said, turned his hand to true horror with the impossible. And he came in recently to talk to me about his experiences making the film. We're delighted to be joined in the Empire Pod booth by Juan Antonio Bayona, director of The Orphanage and now The Impossible, which is a film that, that destroyed me, I have to say, in the best possible way. It's, it's harrowing, it's, it's heart-wrenching, but it's ultimately uplifting. Can you, can you explain what The Impossible is for people who may not know it yet? Well, I mean, uh, the first time I knew... Well, hello, everybody. Hello. <laughs> uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. <laughs> pleasure to have you, sir. Great. So, uh, the first time um, I heard about the story, I was uh, blown away by it. It, it, was, it created such an emotional impact on me. Mm. And uh, I, I, I tried to explain the story to my friends, and it was I had the same... Uh, result. I mean, I, I realized that there was an emotion in the story that goes beyond the context of the tragedy and talks about human nature in a very powerful way. So I decided to, I decided to start to work on that. We we met Maria, the woman in who the story is based, and then, mm-hmm. uh, and it was uh, amazing. We 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 were at Belen at the end of the producer Sergio Sanchez, the writer, and myself uh, listening to her for three hours. She's an extraordinary storyteller mm-hmm. and she was able to tell us her story with such an incredible level of detail that I was hooked up completely about it and then we start to work on, on, on the film and I very soon realized that the whole film should be an emotional journey I mean these people they went to Thailand and they went back home with no explanation so it had to be exactly the same no message not try to be condescendent just to make the audience feel the experience 
uh, and create an impact and do something transforming and thought-provoking. Mm. So th- this is a, a family, a Spanish family in yeah. real life, who uh, managed to somehow, against all the odds, survive the Boxing Day tsunami. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it is a phenomenal story. Can you talk about why you, you, you changed the nationality of the family from they're, they're Spanish in real life and they're, they're British in the movie? We, we never wanted to put an accent on nationalities. We yeah. soon realized that the water took that all away. I mean, took that very soon, that away. Um, the truth is that the first draft of the script was already written, was written in Spanish, and 80% of dia- dialogue was already in English because these people had to talk in English to make them understand yeah. to the other ones. So so I, I thought it was like a natural option to, to go to English uh, speaking cast oh my English my English is really bad today it's, it's, it's after the than, premiere last night it's better than mine okay good <laughs> so you know, we never want to put the accent in nationalities yeah. uh, this film was about people mm. uh, it is it's about this amazing I mean, the film is called The Impossible because mm-hmm. it is a story but you when, you when you see it when you hear it you think that couldn't possibly have happened yeah uh, and uh so, the real family—they—they—they they, they survived. They lived, and how much of their how true is this film to their experiences? Yeah, you're, I mean, um, I think that one of the reasons I like about the story is that they survive, mm. and they're Westerners, uh, like ourselves. I mean, uh, the truth is that it's very interesting uh, that from the very first meeting I had with Maria, you can notice how suffering there was in there still nowadays yeah. what they they talk about what they what, what they talk is uh, the survivor's guilt yeah. uh, it's funny because uh, the orphanage was all about how much suffering you could find in hope and this was more how much suffering you could find in survival yeah. in surviving uh, I liked that contradiction and the fact that they were westerners uh, I thought that was very interesting I mean y- you can find um, some interesting details ironic details at the end I mean there's this guy from the insurance company mm. uh, waiting for them in the airport and he he's wearing this suit and he yes. looks like a guy from another planet yeah. when he represents the real world I mean mm. the world where they're coming from and they 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 left Thailand and really with no explanation and and, and I mean it's like the, the audience is more or less the same they, they go to Thailand they leave the experience and they need to go back home and, and, and think about what was that I mean and they, you had to I mean the honest way for me to approach the tragedy f- was from the point of view of the tourist I mean yeah. I, it is it's a, an incredibly immersive film and it's a, it's, a, it's interesting I was thinking today about how Hollywood would approach this film and they would have approached it in a very, very different way. And uh, uh, it would have been, I think, a much more uh, a wider spread film of focusing on different survivors. And the, the, the idea to narrow it to the, to the family's point of view gives the film a power. And it, it also gives the tsunami sequence itself a power because we see what they see only when they see it. Can you talk about that, that decision? Well, I mean, this is a great thing about doing a film. Uh, you, you watch news and you're kind of numb about what you see. Yeah. Uh, you see the events, but making a film, you could create a sense of an empathy with the story. So you could put the audience in the story, right into the story, and make them feel and make them understand what really is to be there. Yeah, to make them conscious. And the fact that they survive uh, makes the story more universal because it talks about uh, second chance. I mean, all the people who go to the movies has a second chance if the movie transforms them. This yes. is why we like to do films. Yeah. To to learn things about ourselves. I mean, this is a we we really like to watch 
to hear stories about uh, survival stories about disasters because mm. they tell us where our limits are so we know better ourselves listening to these stories so I thought that talking about a disaster talking about survival it's a way of talking about I mean talking about second chances a way of make of try to transform the audience and make them understand and, and send them back home not with a message but with uh, provoking them what was that because it's, it's a film that's about a mother's fight for survival Mm-hmm. about a young boy because mm-hmm. it, it primarily focuses on Naomi Watts and Tom Holland okay, yeah. talk, was, was that a natural decision given what what, what happened well I mean it, the, Maria told us the story from her point of view mm-hmm. and we went back to her with the story from the point of view of Lucas it mm-hmm. was the more natural way for me to get into the story uh, I don't have kids so I I, right. I, I, I found my, myself more comfortable from the point of view of Lucas and also if you think about the the orphanage it's kind of like also like a coming of age story. Mm, yeah. uh, we talk a lot about Peter Pan in that film and, and in this film, it's not just a story of Lucas, it's a coming of age story for Lucas, but also for the family because the family is different at the end than at yeah. the beginning. It's funny, the first time I talked to to the little Simon, the, 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 the youngest uh, yeah. kid in the family, yeah. he came to me and said, he was, it was funny because he was eight at that time. He came to me and said, very serious, this experience transformed me. I don't know how. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I thought, oh, okay, so I'm going to try to put that in a film. I'm going to try to, because it was not just Simon. Lots of people I talked to, yeah. they told me that they were different, but they don't know how. So I was trying to explain that in the film. I was trying yeah. to, how to, how to, how to explain that, how to explain something that not even the characters, not even the people who was there um, f- can find the words to explain that. Yeah. So everything had to be very primal and we, we had to play a lot with visuals. If you think about the first and the last shot are exactly the same. It's a plane over yeah. the sea, but it's completely different. Yeah. You, you can think, for example, about the music. I mean, when you do a score, you always play with the same tune, with the mm-hmm. same melody, mm-hmm. but it's always different. But it's always different at the beginning or at the yeah. end. Yeah. Or you, or you can see Polanski movies. Most of the Polanski movies start with the same scene and finish with the same scene. But yes. But the journey in the middle creates a difference. Mm-hmm. Creates a different meaning to. So I was thinking about that. How I will try to show the same things but with a different, complete different meaning. Uh, and one thing I, I, I really loved about the film as well was your use of sound all the way through the film. I mean, it starts off uh, with a black screen, yeah. almost this, this weird overture in a way uh, of, of the sound of the tsunami yeah. getting closer and closer and closer. It's one of the most terrifying things I've ever heard. Can you talk about starting with that noise and then going straight into the jet engine and your use of sound throughout, actually? Well, I mean, when you do a film about the tsunami and people know what they're going to see, you play a lot with uh, expectations. So the whole beginning is all about that. It's not much time before the wave arrives. It's only 11 minutes, 10, 11 minutes. But every time you see the sea, it becomes this kind of threatening thing. So you play all the time with the subtext. You can see like all these postcards of people, happiness, Mm. Uh, before Christmas but there's all the time the subtext that the sea is in there that something's gonna happen so I mean it's like for example when you think about Jaws yes what Spielberg did in that film is that he created the idea that not just the the, the shark but the whole sea 
mm. was a menace. Yes. So he was obvious that the sea was a menace. So you play all the time with that expectations. Mm. And it's funny that the first time we talked to Maria uh, about the sound, she she couldn't say what was that, how was the sound of the tsunami. But suddenly one day she came and said, I know that how does it sound. So I was in an airport and it sounded exactly the way than the engine of a plane. Mm. Curious because the film started with a plane. So I thought, why don't we start putting the audience right into the action yeah. with this big sound that people will think it's a tsunami, but it was a plane. And mm. right at the end in the film, mm-hmm. you see again the plane, but the sound is completely different. So you, you, you're talking about the difference yeah. in the behavior of the characters, how they arrive and how they leave. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Steve. Thanks for coming in. Thank Cheers. you. That's it from the Empire Podcast for 2012. Our final Hobbit Spoilers special podcast should be up now as well. We're just about recorded. Dan Jolin has burst into the room. Where is he? Is he behind me? Mm-hmm. He's left. He's left again. Has he done that? Yeah, we How did he do gone. that? That's really spooky, actually. Uh, our review of the year special should be up just before New Year's Eve for your listening pleasure. We'll be back on January the 11th with guests including Toby Jones and Sir David freaking Attenborough. Ooh. Yeah, stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Uh, but until then... It's goodbye from Helen. Farewell. It's goodbye from Phil. Merry Christmas. Yeah, you see, you didn't wish people Merry Christmas. <laughs> I you don't. Suck. Uh, it's goodbye from Ali. Happy Podmas. Happy Podmas. And it's goodbye from me. Have yourselves a simply magical Podmas listeners and a wonderful new pod. See you next week.